Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Here we go. Here we go. Another edition of Believe in Horse Racing with me, Ken Rudolph. Thank you so much for hanging out with us here again. This show is brought to you by the uh, kids at the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. And we are coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Appreciate you folks rating and reviewing and subscribing and downloading to the shows every single week as we are now on um, Sweet 16. It is episode 16 here on Believe in Horse Racing. And today we're going to talk about, well, one of the hardest jobs, probably the most difficult job, I think. I know being a jockey's hard, don't get me twisted. Uh, but this job, when it comes to the job at the racetrack, there's a lot going on. And that job is the track announcer. The track announcer does everything. You know, I don't know if you ever heard the saying, busier than a one-legged person in an ass-kicking contest. Well, that's what a track announcer is every day, running around like a their head on fire. But they do have this amazing ability to be able to multitask, have great memory, great ability to tell stories and be descriptive. And so today we're talking to a couple of the individuals that I really like what they do. One of them is Pete Aiello from Gulfstream Park. Man, he does a great job with his calls. And then there's Matt Dinnerman at Golden Gate Fields. Super straightforward. I really like what Matt does with the calls. But I also like what these two people are doing as far as the public relations is concerned and their outreach on social media and how they engage with people. But the first thing that draws you in is the way they do their job, right? They have to be able to tell this story of breaking news happening at the track once every 26 minutes and everything that goes within that. And then they have to do it for two minutes. And then at the end of that entire call, they have to find a way to kind of ramp it all up and bring in the drama and then summarize it all at the end, then give you the names and the times and what it means. It sounds like this. Tiger piece in the east, that trio well out of it as they swing off the turn. Quasi Viper cuts the corner just like Fred drops back. He's had enough. Cape Point on the far outside trying to get there. Hula King, a big price coming on two down the outside. Chasing Colorado up the rail, but has too much ground to make up. Down the lane, Cape Point between horses. Hula King on the outside. Hula King 25 to 1 has taken a narrow lead. Hula King gets there. Hula King at a big price ends the Stronic Five defeating Cape Point and Quasi Viper, then chasing Colorado in 405. That was a great call from Matt Dinnerman, who is the voice of racing at Golden Gate Fields. And on this episode of Believe in Horse Racing, we're all about the track announcer and finding out more about uh, their journey and how they got here. We'll talk to Pete Aiello from Gulfstream Park coming up after that. But we're going to start with the guy who... (laughs) He makes me mad because of the way his last name is spelled and the way it's pronounced. It's Matt Dinnerman. Hey, Matt, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, Ken. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great. Although I told you, what is? Uh, do you recall one of the first things I told you about uh, why I wanted to talk to you? Well, you wanted to get some clarification on my name and how to say it because it gets a little no- annoying after a while. And I can understand that, Ken. And the good news <laughs> for you is I've got some info for you and we can get into that. Ooh, I love that. Cool. It's like the onion. We'll just peel off the layers and find out exactly what's causing the stink. Um, I love the fact that you understand. I felt like I was the only one that was feeling that. I'm like, every time I look at his name, I wouldn't say your name on air at TVG to Tosk. I didn't want to mess it up because I hadn't met you. I hadn't spoken with you. And I really hadn't heard anyone else say it. So then I started listening to my colleagues and they're like, Dinnerman, Dinner. I'm like, nah, man, dinner's with two ends. What are you guys talking about? 
Um, and then so now I'm like, okay, it's Dinnerman. But I would love for you to jump right into that right now and tell me the history of that name. So Dinnerman, my dad and his family are from Russia. It's interesting because fun little tidbit here. We actually in this family have two spellings and three different pronunciations within this family. Um, my second, or I'm sorry, my great great aunt named Aunt Rose, who Aunt Rose apparently was a little bit high maintenance and she was a little tough to deal with. Got really annoyed Aunt Rose that people kept saying Dinerman. So she went and legally changed the name to D-I-N-N-E-R-M-A-N. We have cousins who, my dad's first cousins, my second cousins, they're in our family. We talk to them all the time, but their names are spelled D-I-N-N-E-R-M-A-N. We also have um, a separate set of cousins who have the name D-I-N-E-R-M-A-N like myself, but they pronounce it Dinerman because they got sick of people mispronouncing the name. <laughs> and then they've got, of course, in the family, me and my dad and our close relatives, and we call it Dinnerman, but of course, we pronounce it Dinnerman. So two spellings, three different pronunciations in the same family, and at this point, it's a free-for-all. Right. I do love the, that each uh, generation or sometimes separate family units decide on and what's going to be their um, their identifier. And it's very similar to my last name. So my last name is Rudolph, but it is with two U's. So it's R-U-D-U-L-P-H. And that second U has a little accent over it because my last name is Rudolph. Yeah. And that's how I know my family members. There are plenty of people around the world who spell Rudolph, R-U-D-O-L-P-H. But the only people, as far as my father and my relatives told me, the only people that spell Rudolph with two U's are my family. So it's one of those things that when we see Rudolph spelled with two U's, we know that's all of us. We're the only ones that do that. Um, so it's really interesting how uh, families and even generations can decide this is how we spell our name. And do does do members of your family use that to determine? Okay, are you really a true dinnerman? Uh, we're lovers, not haters, over here, Ken. So we, we, we're just like whatever you want to spell your name, it's fine. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I kind of want to get into you know I, I mentioned off the top that. Um, you know, I spent a good deal of my broadcasting career and journalism career uh, as an anchor, a news anchor doing breaking news and news reporting. And I kind of see that what you guys do as track announcers, it's kind of that every 26 minutes. Have you ever thought of that? Do you liken it to, to doing a breaking news report? Because you're basically telling everyone everything that's happening during the running of that race. It's an interesting analogy, Ken, and absolutely. I mean, I think being a track announcer, you're giving that breaking news and you're right in the middle of the hurricane, so to speak. You're right there. You're giving it as it's happening. And you have split seconds to process what is happening and tell the story. And a lot of newscasts, obviously, they have, for example, the anchors. They've got the teleprompter in front of them. or They've written something up to know what to say. With track announcers, it's very much like you're in the middle of a breaking news story. You're right there on the scene. And you have to describe it. 
without having any sort of script or any sort of ideas what's going to happen next. So um, I think it's an interesting analogy, and I like that analogy, Ken. I'm going to start using it more. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as a, as an anchor, you know, a lot of times we'll have, yes, uh, stories that are in the prompter, but then when you get to breaking news, there's nothing in the prompter because this is happening right now. Um, so it may just say in the prompter, um, high speed chase 405 Los Angeles. And then that's it for you. <laughs> and then you're just watching the screen and then doing your best to, to tell a story. Right with what you are seeing on the screen, not just describing it, but telling a story. And that's exactly what a track announcer is doing. You're telling a story every single time. I have never been able to understand how, how you're able to process the colors, the names, the moves, the fractions, everything that's happening all at once. What do you do to prepare for every single race, especially within that 20 minutes roughly that you have before you have to get on the microphone and speak what are you doing well the good news for me is i do go on air before the race each race and, and give my analysis of handicapping and i do think that helps me a little bit with memorizing the horses obviously that's a big step to calling a race is memorizing your horses so i think handicapping for me really helps i mean i'm not fully encompassing the whole field i'm not fully going in there and looking at the the horses handicapping and memorizing them 100%. But usually the night before I do that, just to get a feel for who's in there, and I'll know the names and know sort of the similar uh, horses that have been around for, for a while, and I'll know who's in the race and that sort of thing. Um, usually then after that, after the handicapping stage, the night before I wait until, like you said, probably between races. And I wait until the horses get on the track, simple as that. I'm looking at the silks, that's how I identify the horses. Um, and I also really emphasize knowing that cap color because if they line up on the backstretch, for example, you're gonna only see a little portion of that cap cover and I need to know that. And sometimes even the silks do get um, sort of mixed around if they're lining up and sometimes they get blocked if they're three or four wide and there are two other horses inside of them. So, I'm looking at the silks. The good news is that when you call it a racetrack long enough, you start identifying the silks. And anybody knows what the dolphin silks look like, for example. They've got the blue colors or, uh, you know, Justify, Windstar Farm, or China Horse Club. You know all their silks. So it becomes a little easier when you know the owners. Um, but I'm looking at each horse when they're in the post parade. I'm memorizing them. I'm saying, you know, Justify, Justify, Justify. Some people, they color the program of the silks, and that helps them. I know Frank Miramati, a good friend of mine, does that. Larry Colmus does that on his program on his iPad. I don't do it just because, for me, it works better to just look and visualize. So there's no real right or wrong answer on how to memorize the horses as long as you can memorize them. But that's what I do is I justify, 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 look at the horse, look at the silks, identify the white silk. And, uh, you know, if there's a horse, for example, that has the same colors on the same silks, I'm looking to see if the cap color is different. I'm looking at things to distinguish what is different about this horse over that horse as well. And that can get a little bit tricky. Right. You know, um, it's, it's pretty easy for all of us to go and, and uh, do some research and Google each other and find out where we have been and what we have done. But what I always want to know is a really simple question. A simple answer uh, to a, a simple question. What made you think 
that you could do this. Like you've chosen a profession that's very difficult and there's no training for this. There's no schooling for this. What made you think that you could do this job? Well, I really love going to the races. I love the thrill of the races. I love the horses. I love watching the athletes compete. And I really wanted to be a part of that at the track. At first, I thought, you know what? I really want to be on television. I wanted to do what you do, which is analyze horses on TV, be on TV. But the more I listened to Trevor Denman, because I'm from Del Mar, and I was at Del Mar when I was a kid, and that's the only track I went to. The more I listened to him, the more I started asking questions to my dad. And when I was a real young kid, I didn't know quite yet I wanted to do it. But my dad always tells me he thinks it was always in there because I'd always ask questions. Well, how does Trevor know the the lengths in between horses? How how does he obviously like you just asked? How does he memorize these horses? Um, and I was very interested in that. And I think the only thing I could tell you, Ken, really is is I think. I knew I wanted to do it and I had the passion for it and I knew it was going to be difficult and there were times where I'd practice calling the races and I wouldn't be happy how I sounded. I wouldn't be happy with the fact that I'd mix up a few horses in the beginning when I was practicing just starting out. Um, but I had the passion to really want to do it and I just was so committed to doing that because I wanted to do something I loved and that was what I found. Like you said, it is a little bit of an oddball job, and that's not oddball used in a negative way. That's in a very positive way, but it's a job that not a lot of people think about doing, and not a lot of people do, but I just really had that passion for it, and I was really committed to, to, to doing it because I knew I wanted to do something involving describing horses and describing the race. Yeah, it's a it's always one of those things I've wondered, you know, and it is about you have to have that passion and especially in an industry like this where, you know, um, it, it's unless you find a way in, it is difficult to, to get your footing and then, you know, and find um, kind of a path. And, and you've done that. You found a pretty organic path. As a matter of fact, um, you worked for a trainer, you worked for the track uh, in, in Southern California. Now, of course, you work for the track in Northern California. What? And I don't think that it's necessarily a, a bad thing. I think that the state of racing right now is actually pretty encouraging, you know, especially as an optimist, uh, being the optimist that you are. Where are we going next with racing, especially here in California? Where are we going and where would you like to go? It's, it's a good question because I think, especially right now, there's a lot of unknowns in the future and all sorts of aspects of the industry. Um, and that includes what's going on right now with the, the global pandemic. I think that racing is going in a positive direction. I agree with you. I think there are certainly kinks that need to be worked out. But I think we're really at an evolutionary stage here in horse racing. Um, the welfare of the horses, riders, um, not that it wasn't important, not that people didn't care about it before, but I think it's really coming to the forefront and it's at a place where it's never been before. Um, I think the sports betting is very interesting. And I think at some point, California will get sports betting. I think that will help the purses. Um, and that's a whole separate argument. But um, I think that the one thing I can really sort of 
have my eye on is, is saying we're at an evolutionary stage to where we're, we're starting to see social media bigger than ever. Like we talked about just now, um, the equine safety um, studies in health for both human athletes and horse athletes. And I think we're going in a direction where we're going to see a lot of changes in that field. We're going to see changes in marketing the sport based on social media. Uh, based on clicks and not necessarily live viewers. We'd love to see live viewers, but it is going in a direction where there are a lot more people gambling online. And I think the industry needs to adjust to that. So I think we're, we're heading in a direction right now to where we're going to see a lot more online betting. We're going to see um, a lot more stress on the health of everybody on track. And I think it's in a positive direction because I think we're going to see um, less fatalities. We're going to see um, increased handle. Now, I understand that you're a big baseball guy from your email address and from some things in your in your bio. What, what is that? Uh, okay, I know you're going to mess this up by telling me that your favorite baseball team is some horrible team, and that's okay. I'm going to let that ride right now. Um, <laughs> but I'll let you say it. Who's your favorite baseball team, and where'd your love of baseball come from? Actually, well, now, now my favorite baseball team is the Red Sox. Because I, <laughs> there's the sigh. <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> but yeah, because all my family's from Massachusetts. I used to like the Padres, but they, you know, when I was a real small kid, when I was in the late 90s, when I was like six, seven, and then they got really bad. And then they're, they're, you know, they got new owners. And then the owners started lying to people. And I just said, you know what? Um, <laughs> I, I'm getting really annoyed by this. So I moved to my second favorite team, which is now my favorite team, the Red Sox. But I played baseball for 15 years and loved it. It was my favorite sport. I made the email address when I was about 12. but <laughs> so, And I just said, I'm just keeping it. But uh, yeah, baseball it was my first true love before horse racing, really. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm a lefty. I, I was a center fielder and I pitched and, uh, you know, I had a great career and I left on my own terms with no regrets and had a good time of it. But baseball is sort of a special spot for me because especially in my childhood, it was a huge part of my childhood. So uh, in 15 years, where, were you, where did your baseball, did it take you through high school and college? Yeah, I played in junior college and, and then I stopped after junior college. I played in high school. Um, and, you know, played on some pretty successful teams, you know, especially during high school and early college years. I was on a travel team, and we won a lot of championships. And I think one year when I was 16, 17, we were fourth in the nation. So, wow. uh, yeah, so, you know, it was a good time. It, it was, it, I have so many good memories, and that's what's so fun about thinking back with all the people you meet. Uh, a lot of good players I met, a lot of good families that I met from those players. and. Uh, it, it was a good time, you know. I, I love my time in baseball, but you know what? Towards the end of it, I had that racing bug, and I was starting to shift the horse racing, really. I I love baseball. It's my favorite sport. I mean, I love sports in general, but I do love baseball, and uh, I have a nine-year-old son, and he loves baseball, and I, I have this great opportunity now where I get to coach and manage his baseball teams the last three, four years. Do you think that Little League Baseball gave you a foundation, or baseball in general gave you a foundation to help you through the rest of your life? Absolutely, because I think more than anything, it really implemented the notion that, first of all, it's not just about the talent level. 
you know, talent, talent loses when talent refuses to work hard. And I think it gave me the, 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 the lessons right away that, first of all, you have to work really hard at what you do. You have to be smart. Um, it taught you about working with other people. Um, it taught me about, you know, learning things to become better. You, you don't just go out and do something. You, like you said, you got to know the situation. You've got to analyze the situation. And, and the people that are, are good at that are going to thrive. And uh, I, I think uh, it taught me a lot of different things. Time management. I mean, even when I played in high school and things like that in college, it was like, you know, I had all this classwork to do. And, and uh, you know, you have to learn how to manage your time. And I have deadlines here at Golden Gate and learning that time management is, is and I, I use the same tips I learned back then now with my work here in horse racing. So um, I think there are a lot of lessons that can be gained from baseball and it's not just like, oh, well, you know, the lesson is you got to win at all costs. The lesson is you got to be the biggest, strongest player. Sometimes, especially in baseball, it's like a horse racing as a handicapper, you fail more than you win. So you learn that too, you know, take the failures um, in stride. Yeah, exactly. So when you were pitching, what's the top, what's the max you reached on the gun in junior college? So I was like the lefty Greg Maddox. I was like a crafty lefty. I think I, nice. the highest I threw, I think was like 86, 87. That was like the highest I got. Could you still go out there and throw some pitches now? Yeah, I actually went in the, um, I, I, I went into our uh, alumni game and I, I struck out the side and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, That's it. That's uh, it. I, I don't think I'm ever going back to another alumni game. I think I just kind of <laughs> ended at that, right? But, and I no, I got to be, I got to be a part of this now, Matt, because I'm a left-handed hitter. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I'm a left-handed batter. I've always... Uh, that's the one thing I've taken pride in from being a child going through through high school. I played in, in junior college as well, and um, I could hit. So that's it at some point. But you threw you right. Me. Yes, correct. Okay. Yes. One day, uh, one day we got we got to play catch at some point. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got to try to throw something by me. Throw some of that junk. Yeah, yeah. My outpitch is the changeup. I had a little slider, but the changeup was my outpitch. I love that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because there's a guy I don't know if you've ever heard of him but Ed Zeralski doesn't work in racing anymore but he wrote for the San Diego Union Tribune and it was actually he was around when you were up here in Sacramento and I was in press box here and he used to play in the minor leagues so he told me he told me to bring my glove and it's amazing because I brought my glove to work and it was the downtime it was probably right after the first set of changes about an hour before post and we went on the roof at Del Mar and played catch Nice. That was nice. <laughs> I like that. So here's the thing. Uh, obviously, we're always trying to hit a home run when it comes to uh, the Kentucky Derby. I got lucky and did that in 2005, but there's always something every single year in the Kentucky Derby. As we uh, get closer to that big day, do you have a derby horse? I, ha I hate to give you this type of horse because I think it's, it, it, it's not very creative, but I just think if Tis the Law runs his race, he's going to be awfully tough. I mean, you don't see horses win the way he does. He did at Saratoga in a mile and a quarter first out on a stranglehold at the end of the race. I mean, he was wrapped up. Um, he's got a lovely running style. I mean, he's got a beautiful stride. He's got tactical speed, which everybody loves a horse with tactical speed. 
Danny Franco, it looks like he can just put him anywhere in the race based on how the pace unfolds and run away from it um, whenever he wants, run away from the competition. So he's he's the pick. I mean, he is the horse to beat. And until I see somebody beat him, I don't think anybody at his age level can. I really like Honor AP as a race course. I think the last race, he wasn't cranked up fully. And, and this time around in the Derby, he will be. Um, and I like Art Collector. I think it's going to be a very formful addition. But um, is the law until anybody can prove that they can get close to him? I don't think he's losing that. <laughs> Good to say, man. It's been really great getting to know you. Not only just this conversation, but obviously through social media and uh, and little conversations. And uh, it was really fun. It was. I had a, just a crazy vibe about you during the week, and I was like, I'm just going to play this guy's pick five ticket. I'm just going to play it. I'm I'm not even going to look at it. I just got a feeling. <laughs> that brings... Yeah, that's why I was talking. That's why I posted. Right. I didn't want to let everybody know because I played it after. I don't like to tell if I played it after the fact. Sure. Um, if I play something, I like to let everyone know I've already played it. But I did want to alert everyone that you had given it out, and it was it was live for that single. Yeah. And uh, and then you did it again the next day. The next day, not quite as lucrative, but still, the the concept and, and the uh, uh, and the point is that you're good at your job. Keep doing what you're doing because people are watching. Thanks so much, Ken. I, I was in a little bit of a slump uh, before that, so I'm thinking you helped me get out of it. Maybe it was a uh, good luck charm for you to play that ticket. That's me. I'm <laughs> magical. Hey, nice talking to you, Matt Dinnerman. Uh, we'll check in with you soon, man. And, of course, Matt is the, uh, the voice of racing at Golden Gate Fields. All right. Have a great rest of your week, buddy. Thank you so much, Ken. Is loose and charging on the far outside. Less than a quarter of a mile to go. Manny Franco sets down Tis the Law and he's moving away. Chivalry is now outrunning Ette Indian for second. Gouverneur Morris is now fourth. Less than a sixteenth to go in the Florida Derby and it's time to respect the law. Tis the Law is your Florida Derby winner. He won by three over Chivalry second, Ette Indian third, then Gouverneur Morris and Independence Hall to complete the high five in 150 flat. Here we go. We continue our conversation uh, about uh, the hardest job, I think, at any racetrack in any area in this country and outside is being the track announcer. There is so much happening in that booth and so much happening in their brains at all times, and they have to be everybody at all times. It's amazing. One of the individuals who I believe is one of the absolute best at handling every single aspect of this job is the voice of Gulfstream Park Racing, or as I told him, uh, the voice of my pick five going up in flames. It is Pete Aiello on the line. Hey, buddy, how you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. Good to talk to you. Uh, I'm so glad to talk with you as well. Man, you do an outstanding job. You know, obviously, I, I have to do a lot of Gulfstream Park Racing because of the partnership with TVG, and it's outstanding racing. And as I always say, Gulfstream's going to Gulfstream because it's just crazy competitive. But you do a really great job of capturing all of the emotion, heartbreak, excitement, exhilaration in your race call. How did you how did you become what you are now? Like, was this something that you envisioned as a child? When did this start for you? So I'll take you back to maybe two or three years old. I, when I was three years old, I went to Hialeah Park with my family. I'm a Florida bred. I was born and raised in West Palm Beach, so I'm about an hour, hour and 20 minutes north of any of the, at that time, three South Florida racetracks. So going to the races was an event. Uh, even as a young child, I recognized that. You know, it wasn't something where, you know, you live around the corner and you go every weekend. Um, you know, this is a once a month, once every other month. And 
you know, Calder was kind of, uh, they ran nine months. So going to Calder wasn't all that exciting, but going to Goldstream or going to Hialeah was a big deal because they didn't run for very long. So it was a special event. Um, so I was a fan uh, by a very young age. I think I made my first bet uh, when I was six. Uh, and I just, I liked one of the leading jockeys at Calder, Michael Lee. And I would bet $2 to show on any horse that he rode. And that was the, that was the genesis of me being a fan. Um, so by the time I was 13, 12 or 13, I guess, I got so I, um, I liked the statistical analysis part of it. And I liked the, uh, to learn how to read the form. And my dad taught me how to read the form. And uh, one of the first times I can remember using the racing form to formulate my opinion, ironically enough, was at Goldstream. And uh, I, I, I wanted to go big, Ken. I went from a show bet. <laughs> I went from a show bet to a win bet. I told my dad I wanted to bet two dollars to win on Rebridled. Uh, was the name of the horse, Richard Migliori up. And he looked and he said that horse is thirty-five to one. Maybe we would just bet to place. And I, I insisted that I be bet to win. He didn't listen to me. The horse won. He paid seventy-two dollars. <laughs> that's awesome so so now i'll take you i'll try to i'll try to i'll try to i'll try to give you the the cliff note detailed version hybrid of the two things so but you know by the time i'm 14 15 i'm in high school i'm at a uh i'm at a uh, local high school studying law i was pretty much a pre-law major i was taking college level law courses and it was a law magnet program and i was kind of doing what my mother always thought i would be but she's, oh, you're such a good talker. Be a lawyer. Well, you're half right anyway, Mom. Um, so when I was 15, I saw an advertisement in the racing forum for uh, Luke Kratboss's picture was on it about the racetrack industry program at the University of Arizona. So I said, man, I want to go to do that. Um, and we'll need some more time for that whole saga to unfold. But uh, the short version is I just wanted to work in the industry. I didn't, I didn't know really what I wanted to do at that point. Um, but I wanted to work in the industry. So about that same time, my father bought me a horse racing computer game and I loved it. And I still would play it now if there was a way where I could get the software on a regular new computer. But I guess the, the coding is so archaic, it doesn't function well on new machines. But, uh, you know, there was, it was everything that you, me, and any other great racing fan like claiming races and horses improving and form cycles and stakes races and buying horses at auction. And of course there was no... Um, you know, you're playing against a computer, but even so, it was very well done. So I played this game for hours and hours and hours to the point where the game itself was no longer challenging. But to me, I didn't want to stop playing the game. So I had to invent a new challenge. So I started to write down the names of the horses that would take place in these you know, races. And I would write it on a sheet of paper next to the computer and I'd mumble it to myself and just imitate the three guys that I heard the most from Frank Miramati, Phil Saltzman, and at that time it was uh, Vic Stauffer. And I just, I listened to those three guys enough that I knew what it was supposed to sound like yeah. from, from myself. And it kind of, it kind of got louder and louder and louder from there. And I remember one day in particular, my father was on the other end of the front door and he walked through the front door. He goes, man, you got to calm down. I can hear you from outside. <laughs> So uh, that was that was kind of the genesis of wanting to do the job. And then I got I luckily for me, I got into the University of Arizona and, you know, they do an exit uh, entry and exit interview and the entry interview. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I kind of want to be a track announcer. And at that point, you know, Luke Ryposs had gone through the school, Bobby Newman had gone through the school. So it wasn't unprecedented 
but but at the same time, you know, from an academic point of view, when somebody tells you that they want to do something that they've seen or heard on TV, even though, you know, in cases like you and I, we can do it, a large amount of people think they can do it, and then they get thrown into the deep end of the pool, and they, they're, you know, they're str- they struggle, and that's not an indictment against them, it's just, you know, it's fortunately for us something that we're good at doing, but everyone can't do it, that's just part of the world. Um, so with that in mind, I bring that up because Luke Kripos pretty much told me that same thing the first time I met him, which was in the winter of 2004. And he said, I, you know, I'm happy to help you and I'll mentor you along and give you all the tools that you need to be successful. But first thing I got to do is know if you can actually do the job. So let's try to get your race call set up and, uh, and we'll go from there. And um, so I did that. It was at Rolito Park in Tucson, Arizona. He set it up. And as a matter of fact, if anybody followed my Twitter in the last couple of days, somebody sent me a win photo of the horse who won my very first race call. So I'm scrolling to that now so I can get you the date. It was March 6th of 2005. Um, and that was my first race call. And uh, I'll never forget that day. You want to talk about it. I mean, and I talk about it at length, how things are just really divinely work out. Um, and you're on the West Coast, so you can appreciate the weather patterns more than somebody in Florida, say, can. But, you know, it never rains in Arizona. And if it rains in Arizona, it rains hard, and it rains everywhere. It's not this isolated thunderstorm that we're so used to in Florida. So it rained in Phoenix the day that I was going to call that race. But it didn't rain in Tucson, which is where Rolito was. So Luke, calling the races at Turf Paradise at the time, they canceled. So he drove to Tucson to hear me call this race at Relito Park. And I can promise you with this, hand to God, if I had known he was in the building, you wouldn't be talking to me because I had a choke. Um, but I came down the stairs of the little rickety old press box area, and he was standing at the bottom of the stairs. I said, Luke, I said, what are you doing here? I, said, well, I had to hear you. I said, well, how was I? And I tell you, Ken, it was probably the longest four seconds of my life. Well, he goes, uh, you don't suck. It was, I guess, my first affirmation that, hey, maybe I can make a go of this. People don't understand. Sometimes it is as simple as that. Well, okay, you don't yeah. suck at this. All right, so just keep on yeah, going. Exactly. Let's see how and, that was his, and that was his logic, and that's kind of what we did. Getting a start in this business is such a weird story for everyone, especially when it comes to being a track announcer. And uh, you definitely took... Uh, the very interesting route, but you did one thing that a lot of people don't know about. You went through the track management program at University of Arizona. And I don't know a whole lot of people who went through that, that work in the industry. Um, how easy is it to get into that program and how, how helpful was it for you? Well, I mean, to your first point about being able to enter the business, I would not have been able to enter the business, but for the University of Arizona. I mean, uh, you know, so, so many of our great you know, industry stalwarts were born into the business or they have friends in the business or they had some sort of, you know, help. But, you know, you and I, I mean, I, I shouldn't speak for you. You can speak for yourself, but we were fans. Like that was the end of the business was being a fan. And so for me to, to try to break into a business just because I'm a fan of it, I mean, it would be like saying I wanted to be a pro wrestler just because I want, like to watch pro wrestling matches. A lot more to it. <laughs> um, so for me, it was getting the, you know, getting the network put into play and, and meeting people in the industry and convincing them that I wasn't just some punk kid with stars in my eyes, you know? 
Um, so, but for the University of Arizona, I would not be talking to you. That, that I can guarantee. Um, and as far as getting into the school, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I can't really speak to that other than to say that I only applied to one school when it came time for college applications, and that was the University of Arizona. So uh, maybe, they, maybe they saw that uh, I was an out-of-state student and they could get some out-of-state tuition out of me. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't the uh, valedictorian of my school. I'll put it to you that way. But the thing about the world, I think it always works out for people who are supposed to be where they are. You obviously have the talent. You obviously have the drive. You obviously have as what we call nowadays the bandwidth to be able to handle all of the responsibilities and handle everything that comes with a race call. But the one thing that I've always wanted to know, especially now lately, and I've gotten used to it on the set at TVG, I've gotten used to it as a player that when it says zero minutes to post at Gulfstream, I've got three to four minutes. Um, did, was that, did that take you some time to get used to? Um, I used to make fun of Gulfstream, but now I kind of appreciate the extra time that I get to take a look at it. What has that delay been like for you? And, and do people always give you grief about that? Yes, people always give me grief about that, but I think that that comes to, there's a certain element of being a brand ambassador, not only for the track that you work at, but also for the industry. So it's one thing on Twitter to, to take, take questions from fans that are already industry fans. It's another completely to defend and, and support the industry with people that aren't familiar with the industry. Um, as far as the zero minutes to post thing goes, the only thing I ever get guilty of, especially in the summertime, is watching another race or watching something or zoning out and then they get to the gate and there's three horses TV guys come over the two-way box and go, hey bro, you going to call this one or what? Because <laughs> uh, I do tune out to it. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I have two, a couple of big TVs in my room so I make sure that I have it on our feed so I don't, uh, I don't miss it. But as you have already illuminated, there's a lot more that goes on than just me standing in the in the V of the window waiting for this. <laughs> and the thing about uh, the racing is that, you know, I feel like nowadays it's it's really okay to start to kind of pull that curtain back on what we do um, on this side of the industry, whether it's you as a track announcer or me as a presenter on television. The thing I love about what you're doing is that you're super engaging on social media. You interact quite a bit and you don't do it, as you just mentioned, you're not just the brand and, and ambassador. You talk because you're a player as well, so you're having fun, you're making fun of things every once in a while. Did that take you some time to work into that persona? Did track management give you the leeway to say, hey, you know what, go ahead and engage with them? How did you get to this point where you are now? God, what a loaded question that is. Um, <laughs> I'll answer what I know the answer to first and foremost. I mean, I think that I've recognized from the time that I was you know, in, in, in college that really the last thing you want to be labeled by anybody in any industry that you're in, especially when you're interacting with public and you're talking about sports, if you're just a company man or the, or, you know, a more derogatory term that they throw around on social media now a shill. And I never wanted to be that guy. I mean, uh, somebody jokingly called me the people announcer and I don't know about all that, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, and, and listen, I'm a, cons like you said, and we're all consumers, you know, we know what we like, we know how we like it. And if we don't get it the way we like, we're going to complain. That's part of life. But by the same token, there's something to be said for understanding that dynamic and appealing to people's senses of not being cookie cutter, for lack of a better term. So, I mean, I think that, 
I think that there's a lot more to just me tweeting jockey changes or tweeting scratches or, you know, um, so I, I do try to make it a little bit more of an interactive presentation. And I think that goes to your, your point about pulling back the curtain a little bit. I mean, I think that there's a fine line in broadcasting and a fine line in sports where you're kind of exposing too much. But at the same time, I think it's a very good thing to let people feel like they're part of the game. Because that's really what separates horse racing from other sports is there's a huge, huge gap when you're watching an NFL game between the NFL broadcaster and a fan. But on the horse racing level, you can interact with you, you can interact with us, you can interact with me. I mean, there's, there's a lot of interaction that can go on. And, you know, if you, if you tweet to Joe Buck, you're probably going to get one out of 100 responses. If you tweet to me and you're nice, I can almost guarantee you're going to get a response. Yeah, that's the key is the, is the being the nice part. Um, I tweeted at you the other day and I wasn't expecting a response. I was quickly venting um, and I was like, he's not going to respond to that. But I, I hope you didn't take it personal. I was like... No, I did. And I did respond to it. I just didn't choose your tweet as the one I responded to. I got six or seven. And here's, here's the thing about it. I mean, listen, I got six or seven responses asking the exact same thing with a lot of different takes on it, but it was the same take. It was just a little bit more emotion. When there's, and this is the part, you know, when and this is the, this is the sticky situation and I'll walk on eggshells as best I can to not answer anybody in that scenario is wrong. As far as I'm concerned to, to just ignore it and say, well, not my problem. Right. Conversely, I can't. And I do think that people respect the fact that I'm not speaking for other people either. So I don't mind being a middleman, especially if you're if you're asking a general question or you do want an explanation. Um, so you know I, that, that was where I was at on that. I I, co I quoted the one of the tweets that was asking what the deal was. I cited the the rule as far as the fair start rule in Florida. I went and asked the stewards, and they confirmed that that was what they used to make the decision. And yeah, there was a lot of anger and frustration with folks after that response. But I can't speak to anything after that. But by the same token, some people would say, well, you shouldn't have engaged at all. You should have just shut up. But that's not the right answer either, especially when everything in life anymore, the word transparency is talked about. You know, I, I don't mind engaging. Be civil. I'll engage with you about anything. I love that. And I've, I've been trying to be like that exactly in the sense that, you know, we don't hide. Go ahead, respond to them and give them some kind of acknowledgement that we're all in this in, in many ways, we're in this together. And I like the fact that you take that approach and you know, don't ignore them, but at least respond if they are civil. And, and I'll respond a lot of times to tweets, even if they're not civil, just to investigate that person. Just to see, okay, sometimes yeah. maybe that first one was just them trying to be sarcastic and it didn't come across the right way. So I'm going to give them another chance to engage me as a human being and see what comes back. And uh, it's really interesting how we navigate that nowadays. It's completely different. Um, we're all out there in social media and, um, yep. <clears throat> it's really, really tricky, especially for people in our position where you you do represent the brand of the company you work for, the brand of the industry, but at, you don't want to be cookie cutter, as you mentioned. And you, and I mean, me, I'm all about, I want to be as authentic and as true as I possibly can. You and I are cut from the same cloth there. Right. And so it, every day is just a different, um, a different test. I think in finding ways to 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 be yourself out there, 
yet not compromise yourself or, or leave yourself vulnerable. Well, and I think you know, and I think the you know the front the and I'm, I don't know again. I'd love to hear your your own experiences with this, but I think sometimes the frustrating part about being being that guy is that people need to understand at least on the other side of the table. You know, TVG in your case or Gulfstream Park of the Stronic Group in mine. We want the same thing. I'm never going to put down the entity that I work for. I'm never going to not support the entity that I work for, but I don't need to do it the same way that everyone else is doing it. The end game is the same because the reality is, is that you will have a certain element of fan who respects you. And because they respect you by proxy, they like TVG. I have fans that because they like me by proxy, they like Goldstream Park. That doesn't mean they have to like everything about everything that we do. And just the opposite is true also. There are people who are avid supporters of Goldstream Park that think that I should be working somewhere else. And you know what? Those people are more than entitled to their opinions. And one thing that I have and will continue to do, if you want to civilly critique something I said or did, I'm all for that. Because the reality of the situation is, is I'm my own worst critic anyway. So if you think you can take a shot at me that I haven't already taken it myself, go ahead. You know, as we're getting closer, obviously, um, I got to check in with you. Who is your your derby horse, because in the course of this whole elongated run up to the derby, you've had some chances to call, you know, some of the runners that are going to be in the gate. Uh, who are you rooting for? Well, I'm not saying this because it's the quote right answer, but tis the law all the way for me. Um, it's ego related as far as I go, as far as I'm concerned with me in the sense that I was real happy with my Florida Derby call ever since that race. When Tis the Law runs and wins, somebody invariably quotes the Florida Derby call. So um, I've already been told that uh, there's a horse that's being named after the Florida Derby call, which I think is ridiculously cool. Um, so that <laughs> they've won me over in that camp. All sure. right. I like it. The judges will allow. Pete Aiello, man, it's such a pleasure talking to you. I hope it's not the last time. And we'll continue to engage on social media. And uh, I just appreciate everything that you do, man. Seriously, even before you even step on the microphone, I appreciate all the information that you give out. And I just love the way you call a race. Keep it pushing, baby. I sure appreciate it. It's, uh, it's surreal to get to talk to people that you looked up to in the industry, like yourself, you know, as a fan sitting on my couch at home, wanting to be part of the industry. And then that's my favorite part of the industry, Ken, to, to interact with people that you looked up to as and do so as an equal is a really cool thing. It's all love, baby. Appreciate your time. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. There it is. That's going to do it for this uh, episode of Believe in Horse Racing. I really want to thank Pete Aiello <laughs> at Goldstream Park and Matt Dinnerman, who's awesome at Golden Gate Field, two really good dudes. And I appreciate their time and I appreciate their interaction on social media. We'll continue to do this. We have one more week to Kentucky Derby coming up uh, next week. We'll talk with some very special, my handicapping brothers. We'll talk about the Kentucky Derby and we'll pick our winner. And we'll be talking with some connections of some horses trying to win the Kentucky Derby. All that and more coming up as we continue our conversation right here on Believe in Horse Racing. Until then, I will see y'all and let's get this money together. Peace.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.